Welcome to today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Elstrom, and we'd like to thank our episode sponsor, GlaxoSmithKline, or GSK, for their support of Myeloma Crowd Radio and this program. Now, before we get started, we'd like to share an update on the tool we created called HealthTree. So we created HealthTree because it's what I wanted as a patient when I was diagnosed, um, but we wanted to help you as a myeloma patient better navigate your disease. So you can track everything about your myeloma in a single place, like your labs or your MRD status or your myeloma genetics. You can see personally relevant treatment options. You can find clinical trials you're eligible to join. And you can do all of those things, even if no one else had joined HealthTree. And now that we have over 5,000 registered myeloma patients in HealthTree, it's very exciting to be able to offer more benefits with our anonymous and aggregated myeloma stories. We've created a section called HealthTree Reports, and we have over 55 reports you can now view of the aggregated information. So, of course, when it's shared, all the data shown is anonymous, but it's really interesting to see how many patients had bone fractures or the percentage of patients who have family members with myeloma or other such types of things. And we're adding new reports every week. So if you've joined HealthTree already, make sure you've completed your full health profile and you'll want to watch the report numbers grow when you add your answers as they are dynamic in real time. Now, on to today's show. I think many of us are thinking about infections lately, especially with news of the coronavirus. And while we won't talk about that too much on this show, many myeloma patients, and especially those undergoing stem cell transplant, can be really prone to infection due to the disease itself or to myeloma treatment. And I'm very excited to have Dr. Jennifer Sallow with us today to share her research on infection prevention, in, especially in multiple myeloma. So, Dr. Sallow, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Now, before we get started, let me um, introduce you just for a minute. Um, Dr. Sallow is Assistant Professor of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Duke University. She serves on editorial boards of the Open Forum Infectious Diseases and reviews journals including Medical Mycology, BMJ Case Reports, and Clinical Infectious Diseases. She received um, the Meritorious Service Award at Duke and several teaching and resident awards from Columbia University. She performs both basic and applied research on topics like mass spectrometry, B-cell immune deficiencies after transplant, transplant infection disease management, and vaccination for transplant recipients. So I really think we have no one better than you to be on our show today. So I'm (laughs) just (laughs) so excited. Um, Well, first, can you share? uh, We're super happy to have you. Maybe one I want to just get started with our questions, and maybe the most basic question is the question that you proposed: um, is why do I need an infectious disease doctor in the first place? <laughs> well, well, thank you for including that in the list because I get that a lot. <laughs> you know, I think when patients come in to see me, especially you know, in speaking specifically about myeloma patients that are going through the transplant process, it is such an amazing multidisciplinary team that they see. But amongst that, that means that there's many providers that they're seeing, and they're always kind of asking. Sometimes I'm in the loop in the beginning, or sometimes I'm in the loop at the end after transplant, um, and and when infections result. But when they see me before transplant, where they're 
perhaps there's no infectious history, I think you're always a bit curious about why am I seeing an infectious disease doctor. And so I always kind of like to explain to them that, you know, we really like to be involved both in the pre- and post-transplant period. You know, every patient comes to transplant with their own unique um, risks for infection, whether it be related to their disease and their therapy or kind of their epidemiologic exposures before they get to transplant, infections that they've had, all sorts of things. And we really like to be involved before transplant so that we can do everything possible to prevent infection and then know those patients really well along the road so that if infections do happen in the post-transplant period, we're kind of there, we know them well already, and we're, you know, mindful of kind of what we think might be major issues for them as they, as they go through that process. So I think um, oftentimes they feel like we get involved in the kind of, you know, um, when after an infection happens, but we really like to think of ourselves as uh, important in, in, in truly preventing infection in these patients. Oh, that's great. Yeah, well, you'll want to know that who that person is at your facility before you get started with that process, I think. And I know we'll be Absolutely. talking a lot about infection, yeah, as, as a result of transplant or as part of transplant. But I think myeloma patients, um, just because, you know, one of these immunoglobulins is growing out of control and crowding out the other, um, right. The other ways of fighting infection, myeloma patients deal with infection even before they get started with treatment. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so generally, can you share the likelihood of infection for the average autologous myeloma stem cell transplant patient? Well, you know, I think um, in terms of – it's hard to, you know, say in terms of uh, – Percentage-wise, we we know that you know every again every patient is unique, um, and the, their risk of infection at the time of transplantation is dependent upon a lot of things. Um, one is kind of the status of their disease, how heavily pretreated they are coming into transplant itself. Two are infections that they've had, you know, while on therapy headed into transplant. Um, and then the third is really what their post-transplant course is going to be just in terms of their disease itself. But we know, generally speaking, they're certainly at higher risk than any average patient, um, and they're at a little bit lower risk than our um, average allogeneic transplant recipient, which is, you know, as you know, a patient that gets cells from a, a donor, not from themselves, where there's risks of things like graft-versus-host disease that necessitate kind of augmented immune suppression and, and things of this nature. But generally speaking, we think of them as being, you know, quite high, at a quite high risk for viral, bacterial, and even sometimes fungal infections and other atypical kind of uh, pathogens um, uh, heading through transplant, you know, more so in, during certain uh, periods of transplant, which I suspect we'll get to, um, but that, that, that uh, on whole, you know, infectious complications are a major component of the morbidity and even mortality that we see in autologous stem cell transplant recipients. Mm -hmm. And not just for transplant um, as well, but I think many patients die of infections, and it might be even the leading cause of death for myeloma patients, not the myeloma itself, but the fact that either the, you know, the myeloma has increased or grown or... And that's not transplant related necessarily, but um, no, no. It, it, it's a big fact, issue fact, for patients. It is. And in fact, I think, you know, stepping away from kind of the transplant realm, you know, m multiple myeloma patients, especially in those first several months after diagnosis or at the time of diagnosis, are probably at one of their highest risk periods for infection. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're not even talking about, you know, post-treatment and coming into kind of a consolidative phase with transplants. So, that's how, you know, they absolutely have, you know, ebbs and flows of infectious risk along the path, um, even before transplant, most definitely. 
Mm-hmm. So you mentioned viral, bacterial, and fungal types of infections. Are, what, yeah. are, what do you find as the most common infections that occur either prior to or following transplant? Yeah, no, I think so, you know, thinking about um, the transplant itself, maybe just focusing for the, for, the moment, for this moment in time on transplant, I think we generally think in terms of most common infections in a, in, a, in, a, in a timeline type fashion, just to kind of generalize that. So, you know, mm-hmm. in, in an autologous transplant, I think about them in kind of a pre-engraftment phase, which is meaning at the time of their consolidation when they receive their, their therapy uh, for the transplant before they receive their cells until their white count recovers, which we consider their white count engraftment, um, and really through that first 30 days. And then there's a second time period that we, we just call the post-engraftment phase. And during that, that and, and the risks and the different types of infections really vary based on that period. So, you know, around the time of the transplant itself, when patients are most, you know, heavily immune suppressed in the, in the sense that they're neutropenic, um, there's breakdown of mucosal barriers, either from mucositis related to the chemotherapy that they're receiving um, or the presence of indwelling lines. Um, you know, essentially every patient coming through transplant will have a central line in place. Um, and they don't have those key kind of innate immune, immune cells, the neutrophils, um, to combat infection. And it's at that point that they're at most risk for bacterial infections. So certainly gram-positive, staph aureus, uh, strep viridens, uh, coagulase negative staph. They're also at risk for gram-negative pathogens. And like coliform bacteria, think about E. coli and Klebsiella, but also kind of more, more formidable pathogens like uh, 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 Pseudomonas. Um, during that time period, they're also at risk for some types of fungal infections, a little different than um, allogeneic transplant patients, but we do worry about candida, which is a type of yeast that lives is part of our normal flora, but when the flora gets disrupted and patients are neutropenic, it can be very um, severe. It can cause severe infections in those patients. And then in that early period, in terms of viral infections, the one we worry about most is probably herpes simplex virus. Um, which, you know, we oftentimes think about oral or genital herpes, um, which is probably the most common manifestation, but it can be much more severe than that with disseminated disease involving, you know, uh, organs, the brain, the lungs, the liver. Um, And so those are probably the biggest and most common pathogens that we worry about during that period. Um, and then, you know, community, res- community respiratory viral infections, infl- influenza, well, they have no time period. They're always, they're always lingering. There's always that risk. And then in the post-engraftment period, we begin to worry about things that are more related to kind of delayed um, uh, immune reconstitution, both of the humoral and also your cell-mediated immunity. So we worry about more atypical stuff, um, sometimes CMV, cytomegalovirus less common in autologous, but we do see it in autologous stem cell transplant patients, zoster, so shingles is a biggie that we worry about during that period. Um, and then um, things like pneumocystis, jirobechiae, uh, uh, it's a type of atypical, um, essentially fungal pathogen, a type of pneumonia that we can see in that patient population in varying degrees of risk kind of depend upon the patient and what their pre- and post-transplant myeloma therapy will consist of. Okay, wow, that's um it makes me nervous <laughs> just hearing about all those <laughs> not the, not the and, and, and just to say around all of those we have wonderful prophylactic therapies. <laughs> yes, well we're gonna talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's go to that. So 
Yes, those are the most common things. So, you know, during that 30-day window when patients have to be super careful and their neutrophils are at an all-time low and they're regrowing and everything, um, that's interesting to to hear about those. So let's talk about what you do to prevent those in both of those yeah. stages. And I like how you broke it out into two stages. Yeah, no. And and just to say, too, to, to clarify and to make us feel less nervous, in an autologous transplant recipient as opposed to an allogeneic, that white, white cell count recovery is quicker. So really, you mm. know, anywhere from 8 to 12 um, eight to 14, 15 days after the, the, the you know, the, the stem cells are reinfused, you know, that, that, that they'll, they'll engraft, whereas an allogeneic, particularly depending upon the source, it may be much, much longer. It may be 20, it may be 30 days after that. So, so mm-hmm. there is a clear difference there. Um, hence, the risk is lower for infections. But so around the time of the transplant, you know, again, I'll tell you our practice pattern. Certainly, every every patient knows this. But you know, the center you go to and the people that manage you may do it a little bit differently. Um, and um, the guidelines and the data that is there is certainly open for interpretation. At our own institution, you know, for prevention in that early period, that 30, first 30 days, we typically have patients on an antiviral therapy, and that's either acyclovir or valacyclovir to help prevent that herpes virus, and does an excellent job in doing that and we give that orally, we can give that intravenously, we can modify that as needed. Um, we, in our myeloma population, we do provide uh, bacterial prophylaxis in the form of levofloxacin, which is a, a fluoroquinolone antibiotic, which has broad spectrum coverage for gram-positive as well as gram-negative organisms. Now, not all centers do that, and it's, these patients are at intermediate risk, and some choose to do that during the period while the, the, the white cell counts are down and other centers don't. Um, and there's lots of reasons to do it or not to do it. Um, and the reasons that people may refrain are things like, you know, affecting your microbial flora, um, the risk for C. difficile infection, which is also ever-present during this period, and, um, you know, the side effects from other side effects from these medications as well as the emergence of resistance. But, but at our center, we do do that during the time of uh, neutro, when patients are neutropenic and, and through engraftment. Um, and um, we also apply fungal prophylaxis with a medication called fluconazole um, to prevent the candidal-type infections. Again, the, the, the fungal and the bacterial, we only do during that highest rest period when those patients' uh, white count have not yet recovered. And once they recover, we take that away. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's great. And um, I had sent you a question before about this um, levofloxacin. And yeah, yeah, had read some studies that it actually could help delay progression-free survival in some patients, and I don't know if that's just infection-related because um, it's infection-related, or if it has some other impact. Do you want to just share the data that you've heard around um, that use, and I guess the rationale behind why you're using it? Yeah, yeah. So I think there's two, there's two sets of. Um, I guess two different time periods. So there's there is um, data that I think is um, currently being discussed quite a bit, certainly amongst 
the individuals at our center and, you know, across, 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 across the world in, in terms of the myeloma population. And one of them is not related to specifically transplant, but patients at the time of initial diagnosis. Um, there was data that was presented at, um, uh, at ASH in 2017 and was just recently published, actually. I think it was, um, uh, it was just in 2019 in the Lancet Oncology, um, uh, the Journal of the Lancet Oncology. It was called the, the TEAM study, and it looked at levofloxacin and prophylaxis in, these very, in this very patient population, initially diagnosed myeloma um, patients, and during that first 12 weeks of therapy, um, at, with the rationale, kind of as, as you alluded to at the beginning of the show, that these patients, when they come into care and are diagnosed, they ha you know are profoundly immune suppressed because they have a yeah. disease that causes multimodal multimodal uh, immunodeficiency, um, and hence are at very high risk at the time of diagnosis for infections. And then you throw therapy into the mix, which in and of itself is immune suppressive, um, and that study um, with the administration, it was a randomized controlled trial where they administered levofloxacin to patients during that first 12-week, during that initial 12-week period, and they found that there was a, a reduced incidence um, in both febrile neutropenia as well as in depth. Um, and so, and, and this is one of the first studies to show that, you know, a survival benefit um, um, has not been shown in other studies in this population during this time period. And so, it, this study has generated, obviously, a lot of discussion and, and changes, frankly, in the way people are practicing in terms of their um, uh, application to the early myeloma therapy group, you know. Um, you know, and I think the, the, the kind of stepping back as a patient and wondering, well, why would why in the world would my provider not do this? You know, listen, I, I'm not going to have febrile, or I'm going to have reduced febrile neutropenia. Um, there'll be a reduction potentially in mortality here. Why would why would we not do that? But you know, it's to realize that every center has its own epidemiology, and you know, each hospital has their own what we we call anabiogram. So. We know that a certain percentage of the most common gram-positive or gram-negative bacteria at our institution are resistant to levoquin or may be sensitive to levoquin. And if, it, if it's above a certain rate, that drug may not actually have that benefit in you. So that, you, know, you have to think about the individual institution and the, the community surrounding that. Will that drug truly be effective for that patient? Um, and then there are issues with giving patients just broad-spectrum antibiotics for extended periods of time, uh, uh, alteration in their microbial, in their, their flora, their uh, bacterial flora, and their um, uh, antibiotic-associated diarrhea. The fluoroquinolone, the levoquin that was used in the study can be associated with tendon um, toxicities. Um, there are all sorts of things, and the questions and concerns for emergence of resistance, the emergence of C. difficile infection. So all of those things come into play when people make a decision. But that is that is data that's out there that's important for the myeloma crowd to know about, um, and I think mm -hmm. is changing the way some people are practicing. Um, around the time of transplant itself, there are there is data surrounding that. Um, there are NCCN guidelines, you know, that we follow, and you know, it is considered. Levofloxacin is considered in these patients for all the reasons we discussed, um, you know, because we know that they're neutropenic and they're at high risk for invasive bacterial infections during that period. And that is the reason that we, you know, typically would apply it in that situation. Yeah, and I remember seeing um, research that I know we posted on our website. I'll have to go back and find it about um, it extending 
progression-free survival, I think, even after transplant. So it was very transplant-related, but that's Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. interesting. I didn't know about the newly diagnosed myeloma as well. Yeah, yeah, that that data was it was it's been presented like I said uh, in 2017 it was presented but I think it just you know it just recently got published not 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 too many months ago and is a, is a, is, a, is a definitely a good a good and very important read. <laughs> mhm. Well, during those um that pre-engraftment to engraftment stage that 30-day window, what specifically can patients do besides taking the um antivirals and the antibacterials and the antifungals? that you talked about to help pr- prevent infection? Because that's a really um, sensitive window of time, I think. It is. It is. It is. I think that's probably the most sensitive window in the in the transplant realm. Um, I mean, there's obviously other periods where we want them to be very careful and, and timeline set for them, but that is, is so important. Um, and it's so hard, I think, because... Um, at, at some point in that 30 days, you're definitely going to start feeling better and wanting to do more and more and just needing to be careful um, in terms of what we do. So we really talk with the patients a lot about the importance of, you know, having, a, you know, a single or one or two caregivers, um, ensuring that they optimize their nutrition. We give them very specific um, instructions on what to eat and how to prepare those those meals, um, uh, we really ask that during that period of time that they they eat, you know, in the home and avoid going to you know crowded restaurants and certainly avoiding things like buffets or you know things where there are certain risks for foodborne uh, pathogens and infections. Um, we also really ask that they you know are just you know. Um, minimize their exposure to crowded areas and really kind of most of their life in that 30 days is really coming to clinic and going home and really trying to minimize the time that they're spending in crowded, not going to Walmart in the middle of the day and, you know, not going to a busy gym and things like this. So just being mindful of their surroundings and trying to not not to avoid crowded places Um, and, um, you know, uh, focusing on um, optimizing nutrition, um, exercising as, as, as feasible, getting good sleep, um, and, um, you know, just kind of uh, focusing on getting better and getting through the transplant, being compliant with medications, being compliant with visits, these type things. Mm-hmm. Right. And do you give um, patients a specific diet to eat? I know that um, it's just kind of helpful to know to be given either yeah. recipes yeah. or just ideas because you can still eat really healthy during that transplant process and um, get good nutrition, but you might have to cook things, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, we do, we do, we do, and in, in, in every center is, you know, they give a little bit different instructions on diet and these kind of things, but certainly there are things, I think that the most important thing is telling patients what to avoid, um, you know, not just telling them, obviously, you want to give them all the great things that they can eat, but but making sure that you're very clear on what they should not eat. Um, and, you know, part of that is, as I discussed, you know, going out and eating the foods that are not prepared by them and buffets and things like this, right. we just absolutely don't want them doing that. You know, unpasteurized milks, cheeses, things of this nature we want them to avoid. Making sure that their meats, their eggs, all of these raw foods are fully cooked. Um, and with fruits and vegetables, you know, making sure that these are cleaned, well cleaned, um, that, you know, any sort of bruised vegetables, that, that, you know, if there's bruised or a break in the skin or things of this nature, that they certainly, you know, they should not eat those. 
um, and making sure that all of these things are washed. Um, we 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 talk around other things that, that certain vegetables and things that they should not eat, like uh, sprouts and things like this, uh, uh, herbs um, that they are getting um, kind of from various and sundry places that we want them to stay away from. And, um, you know, we also talk about water and the water supply and um, that, you know, if they are usually they're closer to the transplant center and they're using the city, the, you know, the municipal water supply, but certainly if there are situations where they're in an area where they have only well water, then they're not to be doing that. They're only supposed to be using bottled water. If they're going to be using that water for any reason, we go through the process of boiling the water and, um, and things like this. Um, we also make sure that we're very clear um, about um, other environments that they should avoid, like especially in those first 30 days, like recreational activities. They should not be going to swimming pools, to hot tubs, and, you know, all of these things that we're, we're making sure that they stay away from because there are very clear infectious risks related to those water sources. Yeah, that's a great review, and um, I'd be happy to share <clears throat> I'd be happy to share that on our website as well because it's yeah. a handy handy list. Yeah, there, there's, and there's an excellent, and I can certainly send that to you, too. The U.S. Department of Agriculture the, uh, and the FDA, we share that with our patients. It's like, it's like a food safety for transplant recipients. And it, it just so nicely mm. details kind of even just the preparation of food in terms of making sure the raw, you know, the eggs and the chicken and the, the things and how, how you should prepare that, how you should separate that. It, it really goes into very nice, um, detail in a way that um, that makes sense, <laughs> you know, that, that just seems logical. Um, and I think, uh, I think our patients really appreciate that and they refer to that often. Yeah, that sounds like a great resource. Amazing. Okay, do you want to also talk about the post-30 um, day time period or the post-engraftment time period, what you do to prevent infection? Sure, sure. So in that in that post transplant uh, in that post thirty day um, viral, the, as I said, the community acquired viral infections. That that risk is kind of always there. So uh, you know, telling patients again that they should avoid crowded areas um, and you know maintain a good social distance when they're you know with people that they're they're that they don't know well um, or if anyone certainly around them is 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 sick that they should you know try to one avoid that person or if they have to be in close proximity you know again social distancing wearing a mask um, and then you know in terms of uh, pharmacologic interventions so typically during that time period we continue them on the antiviral the acyclovir or the valacyclovir only at that period once they've engrafted we really are transitioning our concerns and our focus mainly on on herpes zoster or shingles essentially um, mm -hmm. and, and in shingles prevention because that that too is a very you know um, uh, uh, significant pathogen in these patients, and, and they're at high risk for that, and, and that, that drug does quite a good job in preventing that. Um, and um, in some patients, not all, we apply a Bactrim, uh, or if a patient has a, a sulfa allergy, we use alternative drugs, pentamidine, dapsone, these are the alternatives to prevent pneumocystis. Um, which is, again, this type of atypical fungal pneumonia that we can see in this patient population as well. Um, and typically, uh, we continue the pneumocystis from anywhere from three to six months following transplant, although that risk is reassessed at that three- or six-month mark, and depending on what their kind of maintenance phase consists of and what's happened in that 
early post-transplant period, we make a decision whether we'll stop that or continue that. And with antiviral therapy, that's a little bit the, the valacyclovir or acyclovir, that's a bit of a moving target <laughs> because mm -hmm. the introduction of the Shingrix vaccine now has changed the way we think about that. But by and large, at least at our center, we continue that for 6 to 12 months. We, we continue it for 6 to 12 months. The NCCN guidelines are 6 to 12 months. Um, at our own, our own center, we continue it at least until 12 months. Um, and then we reassess that risk again at that 12-month mark. And, and it kind of really depends upon the net state of immune suppression of that, of that recipient and kind of what is happening in terms of ongoing therapy for their myeloma and the status of their disease. So the acyclovir is what you do for 6 to 12 months additionally or something we, else? We, we, do, we do acyclovir or valacyclovir for 6 to 12 months for the oh, viral okay. prophylaxis, primarily focusing, shingle, focusing on shingles, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, but we Great. also... We also um, vaccinate them, our autologous transplant recipients um, with myeloma. We vaccinate them with the Shingrix, which is the recombinant inactivated uh, shingles vaccine. That was relatively... Well, let's, yeah. 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 No, sorry to cut you off. Um, no, no. Let's talk about vaccinations as, as a whole and really kind of go into depth because um, I've been... I think it's pretty confusing for patients. Like, should I get revaccinated? Yeah. <laughs> when should I get revaccinated? How should I get revaccinated? Do I need multiple shots? Do I, you know, when do I do it? And so anyway, if you want to just walk us through what you typically do for patients, that would be fantastic. Sure, sure. And just to say, it's not, it's not just the patients that get confused. I think the providers as well. So mm -hmm. not alone. <laughs> it is a, a complex task. I, you know, I care for solid organ transplant and, and hematopoietic cell transplant. And certainly the solid organ transplant revaccination guidelines are a whole lot easier than the stem cell transplant patients. So uh, the one thing I'll say is just to put a plug in patients that are really interested and, and want to, re you know, if they have a, something that they'd want to read that would kind of detail this, um, Paul Carpenter and Janet Ungland. Um, had had uh, published in Blood one of the How I Treat series, and it's how I vaccinate blood and marrow transplant recipients. And I think it's one of the, it's one of the most excellent um, kind of frequently asked questions in a question answer format, and it really nicely delineates many of the questions. I think you know even patients sometimes the medical literature can get a little bit daunting in the context of too much detail, but I think it the scope of the paper and the way that it's written even. I think the patients would enjoy kind of reading through that because it does it brings up a lot of the questions that the patients directly ask me about. So um, the way we the way we tackle um, tr uh, vaccinations in our autologous stem cell transplant patients is that we vaccinate essentially everyone um, with the idea that we know that people may have received their childhood vaccinations, but the immunity to that wanes, and it wanes substantially after an autologous transplant. We don't rely on the fact that they had childhood vaccinations um, as being a, 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 something that will provide them, afford them protection as they go through the post-transplant period. And we know that these patients are at very high risk for many of the pathogens that these vaccines are set up to prevent. So, uh, you know, we really feel like it's important to vaccinate these patients. Um, and so we kind of forget that they ever had those, and we start, start anew. We typically don't start uh, vaccinating patients until the at least six-month mark in the post-transplant period. The exceptions to that are twofold. One is the Shingrix vaccine. So we will, um, and that is the inactivated um, recombinant, uh, recombinant um, uh, shingles vaccine, um, the only one that is 
you know, FDA approved is the GSK vaccine, which is the brand name for that is Shingrix. And we start that in our autologous stem cell transplants, any patient that's 18 years or older, um, typically at day 570 post um, autologous stem cell transplant. Um, and then we repeat that with the second vaccine one to two months later. Um, and um, the other vaccine that we, we sometimes do before six months is the influenza vaccine. So we do, you know, an annual influenza vaccine. We like to ideally do it at the six-month mark, but if, if the six-month mark doesn't fall right, you know, meaning there is lots of flu happening in the community before that, mm -hmm. we will vaccinate them earlier. Um, and, and then we have schemes, you know, schemata set up where we'll revaccinate them. So sometimes we'll kind of do a double, double vaccination to optimize their, their immunity in that setting. And then at the six month mark, we, um, we kind of reassess and see where the patient is at. Um, and at that time, we may or may not start vaccines. Uh, it kind of really depends on kind of their net state of immune suppression, what sorts of therapies they're receiving. In most autologous, we can start vaccinating them at that point. If we don't, we typically push that then to 12 months and start everything then. Um, but at the six-month mark, if we do proceed, we typically do the conjugated, the protein-conjugated vaccine, so that stuff like your pneumococcal, your, uh, which prevents uh, streptococcus streptococ streptococ pneumoniae. Um, and we do the Haemophilus influenza B vaccinations and the meningococcal vaccinations. Um, and, and then starting at the 12-month the mark, we do many of the other vaccinations. So the tetanus inactivated polio vaccine, um, hepatitis B, hepatitis A, um, uh, that we begin to think also in patients where it may be relevant in terms of uh, human papillomavirus. So we'll do the vaccination for that as well. Um, so that's, that's the general schemata. And then we really, in any sort of live attenuated vaccine, um, so all of the vaccines I have just mentioned to you now are all the dead or inactivated vaccines. The, you know, the other group of vaccines are these live attenuated. And obviously, we don't want to give those to transplant patients while they're still immune suppressed with that theoretical risk that you could actually give them the infection that you're trying to prevent. Um, so we typically apply a, a rule that they have to be two years out from transplant and a, a year off of immune suppressive therapy and not receiving, not actively receiving a, a type of supplement called immune globulin, IV intravenous immune globulin. With measles, mumps, rubella, which is probably the primary live attenuated vaccine that we talk about, we have kind of lightened up that criteria um, in some patients because obviously that we're having issues with the non-vaccinators in the world <laughs> and in the United mm -hmm. States and our loss of herd immunity. And so we're trying to protect these patients maybe sooner than that two-year mark. And so there are certain criteria that if people meet those criteria, and many of our autologous stem cell transplant patients do, we may vaccinate them before that two-year mark if, we're, if there's a perceived increase um, risk, either based on their travel or kind of where they're living in terms of, um, um, uh, you know, kind of geographically within the United States. And is there a way to test if a patient um, has active um, vaccination still active in their body? Isn't there? I, I think there's a test. I just don't know the name of it. Yeah, no, there absolutely is. And it depends upon the thing you're doing. So, for example, hepatitis B. For hepatitis B, we check a hep B surface antibody, which is a, a, an indicator of immunity. So if it's above 10, that's considered a positive titer. We can do this for hepatitis A. We can do this for tetanus. We can do it for many of them, measles and mumps. 
the problem is, and the reason we don't just do that after trans, we do do that, but we don't, before we vaccinate, we don't feel there's any utility in doing that. Because even if they have some level, at least serologically, of immunity, we don't rely on that. We know that we need to boost mm. that immunity. So let's just say, you know, you tested someone for hepatitis B immunity and they had it. I don't really care. I, you know, I'm still going to want to vaccinate them um, with the hepatitis B vaccine. What I think is more important is actually after you provide those vaccines following transplantation, that then you reassess to see if they've had a response to the vaccine. Are they truly able to mount, you know, an, an immunologic response? response to the vaccines um, so that you can feel more confident that these vaccines are working. And we know that, that these vaccines are not as immunogenic, they're not as um, effective in this population as a normal immune competent host, but we do think there is clear benefit and over time that benefit increases in terms of, you know, their immune reconstitution following transplantation. So we're just trying to, you know, kind of build up that immunity as they go. Yeah, that's so interesting because I know that's the case with the flu vaccine, that sometimes you'll give the flu vaccine, but in this patient population, you really need to um, give a second dose or a, a bigger yeah. dose and then a follow-up dose. So that's interesting. And the titer testing is the phrase I was thinking of. Um, yeah. That's yeah. so interesting that yeah. you just go ahead and do that regardless. That's really fascinating. Yeah, we do. We don't rely, and that the flu. The the, the point you make, you mentioned about the flu is um, it's an excellent point because I, I get this question all the time. Like, is it's just me getting the standard, you know, quadrivalent or trivalent flu vaccine enough? Um, and I think, you know, my stance on that is it is so much more important that patients are vaccinated than not. So depend, it doesn't, you know, the most important thing to me is that they get the flu vaccine, whether it's the trivalent, which has, you know, the three different strains, or the quadrivalent, or the double dose, or doing a booster dose. I just want them to get the vaccine because we have data now to support that just getting a simple trivalent uh, influenza vaccine reduces overall incidence of influenza in these patients, their hospitalization and related morbidity with influenza. So just getting vaccinated is important. Um, and also making sure that their family members are vaccinated. You know, the herd immunity of the crowd that they are with, um, getting them vaccinated is so important. Um, but then, then, then there are some data, and it's really interesting data, and, and, and a lot is being published. There's some people, really smart people, doing a lot of great work um, looking at these, you know, is there benefit of giving these patients the high dose? There's a high-dose trivalent vaccine that's been FDA-approved for patients that are over 65, that instead of having just 15 micrograms of this hemagglutinin, they ha it has four times that amount. And is there some benefit to giving it to these patients that we know already are going to have kind of a reduced immunologic response? Could we boost that immunity and thereby do a better job at preventing the influenza? And um, there are groups within the solid organ transplant community as well as in the hematopoietic cell transplant that have shown benefit at least from the standpoint of it being more immunologically um, robust, the response in patients receiving this double dose, and being safe. I mean, because the other concern is, are, are there more untoward effects by giving patients the, the, higher, the higher dose? Um, and so there is data that has emerged to suggest that. Um, the efficacy data is, 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 is lacking, but there's definitely safety and immunogenicity data that is there. And I think um, more centers are moving towards using the high dose um, 
or, you know, what we sometimes do in patients that um, when it's before the six-month mark and, you know, they get transplanted and at, at the four-month mark, they're right in the smack dab in December and there's lots of flu happening, we'll give them mm-hmm. a standard dose vaccine and then four to six, later, six weeks later, we'll give them a second one kind of as a booster to, just, to, to optimize that immunologic response. Mm-hmm. That um, makes a lot of sense. But again, but again I, I think the most important thing is just getting them vaccinated. Yeah, that's so interesting. Well, I have to have a conversation with my doctor now. <laughs> um, when when you talk about the pneumococcus vaccine, um, I guess there are different valence or these are, and maybe you want to explain what that means and the differences between these two, and do you have a preference or a suggestion on the pneumococcal yeah. vaccine? Yeah, no, no, that's a that's a great question. So there's there are two there are two uh, pneumococcal vaccinations that we do, and we do both in the well, we we recommend both in our patient population. Um, there's a there's the 23 valent, which is a polysaccharide based vaccinate vaccine, and there's the 13 valent, which is a protein conjugate vaccine. And the reason I mention that is, is well, generally speaking, the 23 valent uh, when we say valent, it's it's covering 23 different types. Of, of, pneumoco- of pneumococcal uh, infection, whereas the 13 valent is more narrow spectrum, so it doesn't cover as many types, but it covers the most, the most, some of the most common that are associated with invasive um, uh, pneumococcal disease. But, but when we revaccinate patients, what we know is early on post-transplant, when we start this in the three or we typically do six-month mark that we start this vaccine, they're much more likely to um, elicit a good, immuno- a better immunologic response to the protein conjugated, which is a T-cell-dependent vaccine. So we give them the Prevnar 13, the narrower-focused vaccine first. And we do that as a series of three, and we separate those doses by at least a month. So they get three of these, these doses. And then after they've had all three of those, they're further on post-transplant, and maybe six to 12 months later, we will give them the 23 valent as kind of the kind of giving them the whole gamut, if you will, to both boost um, the, 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 the serotypes that are included in both of the vaccines, but also to um, add in these additional um, types that were not covered by the 13 valent. And we hope that at that later point in transplant, they'll respond better to that polysaccharide-based um, uh, uh, vaccination. And let's say you're so quite far out with both. transplant. Yeah, that's so interesting. Let's say you're quite far out from transplant and you're not within these 6 or 12-month windows. Would you just get the, um, the Prevnar in addition or just do the 23-valent if you haven't been revaccinated? Yeah, I probably would just, do, I would still do that same series. I would still, you know, I would still, you know, just act as, you know, just start there and give you all, the, all four, you know, give you the three and then the, and then the one. Um, the, the important thing is that if you've gotten the 23 valent already, you know, sometimes people, if they haven't gotten the 13s, someone somehow has slipped in a 23 valent because in normal adults, when we're, you know, when, um, when, when, when we're doing boosters in, in, in certain populations, when we do a booster, it's the 23 valent that we do. Um, and so if a patient somehow didn't get their 13 valent, um, the three doses, but did get a 23 valent, we usually, you usually then request that they, you wait a year before you give the 13. So there's, there's, some, there's some nuances in terms of the timing of it. Um, but I probably, you know, if they hadn't had any of them, I would, you know, still administer the full series to give them the very best chance of kind of immunologic response. 
Right, and, and, and then once you're done with that year. series, do you do it annually again, or do you just that's it? No, no, that that, that and that that is um, that's a little bit of a you know. So pe- people at some centers they check, um, they assess the uh, response, uh, the pre and post um, response to the the pneumococcal vaccine to see if they. Um, demonstrated um, response to the vaccine, although there are not not really clear accepted criteria in that population. Many centers do do that and have their own kind of um, uh, criteria by which they do that. Um, but the, the the question of when to revaccinate, so we typically will just do the three, the, the three of the 13, 13 valent, then the 23 valent, and then um, when patients turn 65, they usually get a booster. Um, mm-hmm. of the, the, the 23 valent. But before that time, um, some centers will every five years just do the 23, do the 23 valent, whereas some, some, some don't. Um, I think it really depends upon your patient and what their, um, you know, kind of what their net state of immune suppression is at that five-year mark after you've done that or um, after, you've, after you've completed the series, whether you might consider doing another booster. Okay, you so would, you would never repeat. You would never repeat that whole. Thir- you would never repeat the whole that whole series. thirteen bales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Um, and a, a question, kind of jumping back to what you were talking about before, in terms of wearing masks, staying out of crowds, for stem cell transplant patients, how long does that stage really last? Like, for how long do you really need to do that, or be careful on planes or things like that? Well, again, it really it kind of depends a little bit on the patient, I think, and and what their post transplant course is like. Because some patients certainly are more immune suppressed following transplant than others. But in general, certainly, um, you know, we ask that patients in that first 30 days, and actually, really, I'd say in the first three months, we really ask that they try to avoid you know crowded spaces and really kind of limit the number of people um, that they are visiting with, and making sure that you know being very cognizant of the individuals around them, that people coming to visit them are feeling well. Um, and, um, uh, and then, you know, after that, that first three-month period, we kind of lessen the restrictions. Um, mm-hmm. At the six-month mark, we start talking about if they want to travel, that we let them, you know, that we're, we talk about travel, although we prefer to push off any sort of international travel until they're at least a year out from transplant so that we can get the process of immunizations and all these things started. Um, and it really then, in terms of that international travel, kind of depends on where they're wanting to go if we want to, if we really want them to do that. Um, but, but I'd say that the, the, the kind of the very closest restrictions are in that first three months. Okay. And for those who can travel internationally, like you're saying, you know, none for a year, hopefully. But are there any other additional vaccinations that people should consider, like measles outbreaks or Yellow fever. I I know the coronavirus is uh, like yeah, a crazy yeah. thing right now, yeah. but yeah. you can't really vaccinate no, for no. that. So no, you can't. I think I think um, international travel. I think is a. Uh, I'm glad you bring this up because I think the first and foremost thing I would say is to any transplant patient before you consider international travel you want to go to either a travel clinic or to see one of your transplant infectious diseases providers that is 
comfortable with the management of travel-related vaccination and and guidance and advice, um, and and can can and can give you kind of a solid plan about where you want to go, um, or what you need to do depending on where you want to go. Um, I think um, you know the, the the risks and the additional vaccines that you need depend upon you know the time of year you're traveling, where you're traveling to. Certainly, right now with coronavirus, for example. Um, I've had a couple patients that, you know, have approached me about um, cruises, you know, to Asia um, or in that area where they're stopped there. We are certainly not, you know, we're not letting, or we are strongly advising patients that they they are not to do that. Um, And, um, you know, there are certain restrictions now, um, and the CDC webpage is updated daily on the restrictions, Um, you know, certainly uh, travel to mainland China, and there are several new sites now, South Korea and other places where the travel has become, you know, restricted. And I'd refer the patients and people to the CDC website for those daily, almost daily now updates in terms of the travel alerts. Um, But, you know, kind of stepping away from coronavirus, there are definitely other vaccines outside of our standard vaccines that we think about depending on where patients are traveling. So yellow fever is one that you mentioned, and that is a a mosquito-borne viral hemorrhagic fever that can be associated morbidity and mortality typically associated with, you know, South America and um, other tropical and subtropical areas. And it is uh, something that we like to obviously do everything we can to prevent patients um, from from becoming um, victims of, if you will, um, insofar as we talk about mosquito repellent and mosquito avoidance and all the things that they need to do to do that. But in addition to that, we can vaccinate them. The problem with that is that that is a live attenuated vaccine. It's a live vaccine. Mm. And patients cannot, you know, at, at a year mark post-transplantation, I certainly am not feeling comfortable giving them a vaccine with the potential um, for um, ill consequences and someone that's immune system is not fully intact. And so depending on what they're wanting to do and why they're going there, I I might even advise against it because it's a vaccine that we can't afford to them. You know, we can't can't give to them at that time and maybe think about going somewhere else where that risk is not so high or where the activities, you know, if you're going running through the Amazonian, is not as as high. Um, And then there are other things like typhoid fever. Um, So there are some vaccinations that we can give for patients going to areas where that are you know that, that typhoid is in, endemic, and that's salmonella. Um, that's a, you know a, a, something that's a, kind of a, again a kind of oral fecal feed, a foodborne pathogen at times, and can make patients quite sick. Um, the um, preventative measures um, include an oral live type of vaccine and then an inactivated vaccine. And so we always want to make sure that if patients are going to be traveling to those areas, we vaccinate them with the appropriate vaccine, whether that be a live attenuated or inactivated or a dead vaccine. And then also we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, what you eat, what you don't eat, what, where you go, what you don't do, and all, all of these things in terms of, you know, important travel advice for p- places that they're going. But there's other things, you know, when people travel internationally, um, there may be things – with their job or what they're doing in terms of, um, you know, rabies, um, malaria. I mean, there's all sorts of um, mm-hmm. important things to discuss with them depending upon their, their choice of travel. Um, meningitis, uh, I'm sorry, um, 
uh, meningococcal disease, all of these things are, are things that we, we have to think about. But again, it depends upon the, the, the place that they're going to um, and the time of year. And it's why it's so important that they think about seeing a travel specialist at least, at least at the very least a month, although we prefer that they come at least three months in advance so we can really kind of get their, their plan put into motion before they travel. Right, because you might have to get some, some kind of shots to pr- protect yourself you know, or right, a series. Right, right. Right, or have, the vaccines you want to get them right. started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So I have a question about face masks because you're seeing a lot of them out there nowadays. And, yeah, um, yeah. you know, there are different kinds, as we know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. What do you recommend for myeloma patients post-transplant in that kind of really critical time period? Um and, and type and you know they're hard to wear. I yeah, you know they kind of make you feel yeah. like you can't breathe very well. So yeah, it's not no. an easy thing to yeah. to do to wear those. But yeah, um, what do you suggest? Yeah, no. So and I think you you can ask ten people in the room and you're going to get a different answer on this one. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, but I think. Um, um, in terms of the mask, so there's the surgical mask or, you know, the other kind of more, uh, the other maybe potentially common mask that you might see is the N95. It's a part, the particulate mask. Um, and um, that one of the two is certainly even more uncomfortable and I think restrictive. And um, most of our patients, um, you know, don a, a, just a, a surgical mask. Um, and, you know, what I recommend to patients is if they're going to, if, if certainly they come upon, um, uh, you know, when they're at home, and with their loved ones and their healthcare, you know, their healthcare provider, certainly in their home, they do not need to be wearing a mask. When they're in crowded situations, uh, not not intending to be, but let's say they're at the hospital and they're getting a test done and they're in a waiting room, I I, I do recommend that they wear it, but not. I don't want to give them a sense of false security. I am not saying that that mask, you wear a surgical mask and you're 100% protected against infection. And by no means am I saying that. That's not been proven. Mm-hmm. But what it does do is give a sense, it reminds people of social distancing, that they don't need to, you know, if anything, people are, you know, thinking about their own self-preservation. They see someone with a mask and they might step back a little bit, you know, and not, and not get mm-hmm. up so close to you. So in that sense, I think it's just a, just a gentle reminder to people to, to take a step back, to not get in your personal space, um, and, 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 and in that way indirectly afford some protection. Um, but, but so I do, I do recommend that they do that when they're kind of in a crowded waiting room or in a crowded situation for, for those reasons, um, but, but the understanding that that's not, it's not a perfect solution and, and that the most important thing is hand hygiene, personal hygiene in terms of either washing the hands or using the alcohol-based washes, not putting your hands on your face or touching, you know, being very cognizant of that because I think that is probably the most important thing. Um, and that mask is just kind of secondary but does maybe potentially offer a, an additional benefit. If patients are having a really hard time wearing the mask, um, then I don't, I don't, you know, I, I don't think it's the end of the world, you know, but I think, um, and I don't tell them, listen, if it's, if it's making them uncomfortable, I don't think it's like, um, the end all be all in terms of them wearing that mask, and so I don't I don't force that upon them by any means. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't typically well, yeah. I don't typically recommend the N95 mask um, just for for those things that I mentioned. I think a surgical mask is sufficient. Hmm. Well, that's great to know. I know there's been a lot of discussion lately about about kinds of masks, and I think N95 masks yeah. might be a little hard to get right now. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, and, and, and certainly I'm talking about this in the context of not a healthcare professional. I mean, you know, I'm, right. not, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about patients and this thing outside of coronavirus, because obviously in the healthcare setting right now, there are different recommendations in terms of N95 and um, these kind of things. So that's a, a separate discussion. Right, right. Well, gosh, our friend um, Paul Kluchin helped me uh, connect with you for this important show, and it's just so fascinating. So I've taken up so much time. Um, We're going to do some caller questions, if you don't mind. And uh, if you have a question, you can um, call in 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. And um, we'll start with our caller at 310-5598. Go ahead with your question. Perfect. Thank you. Um, I just have a quick question for you. Do you recommend that family members get live vaccines? This is a fantastic question. I'm so glad you you asked this one. I love this question. Yes. So I think here the well, let me step back a little bit. So I think the most important thing, even is equal of equal importance to our transplant patients getting vaccinated, is their loved ones, their family members, the people in closest proximity to them being vaccinated, whether that's for the flu or whatever age relevant vaccines they need, and that includes live vaccines. Um, and I think that there are some caveats with certain live vaccines. One is for influenza. There is a live attenuated nasal vaccine. We don't recommend that, you know, we, we recommend that if the caregivers are going to get the influenza vaccine, well, one, we're recommending absolutely get it. <laughs> but two, we're saying to get, ideally, to get an inactivated vaccine. There's really no reason to get the live attenuated, that they should get the inactivated vaccine in that scenario. Um, but for things like measles, mumps, rubella, um, primary zoster, I mean, sorry, p- primary varicella vaccine, so chicken, the chickenpox vaccine, these types of live attenuated vaccines, that they, if they need those, they should absolutely get them. And there is nothing that says that they need to be away from their, the, the, the patient when they get those live vaccines. Um, there, mm-hmm. there are, you know, there are a few vaccines where there are concerns for transmission from the caregiver to the patient. One is, as I mentioned, this influenza vaccine. The other is the oral polio vaccine, which we don't, we don't, it's not commercially available in the United States anymore. Um, and then the other one that, that we do have some concern about is rotavirus, which is a, a vaccine that is given to babies, to infants, um, for uh, gastrointestinal diarrhea related to the virus. And in that scenario, we do say that if the, the, there's a baby in the home that is receiving that vaccine, that that individual should not be changing the diaper um, for at least four to six weeks. And, and, and typically, we, we ask that, you know, we, we usually try to have them have someone else doing that job anyhow in the time of transplant. Um, but for, for most live attenuated vaccines, it is fine for the family member to get that. And it does not mean that they have to be furloughed for some extended period of time. Whenever there's a question about that, we, we prefer that they do ask their provider about it, um, but certainly not postpone those vaccines just on the basis of them being alive attenuated without some discussion with the provider about whether or not some sort of um, interaction needs to take place in terms of furloughing them. And in most situations, there isn't, there isn't a need to do that. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so, so much for that response. That's great. And thank okay, you thank you. Started. It's been wonderful. Great. Thank you so okay. much. Great question. Okay, caller at 2901360. Go ahead with your question. Hello, yes. Um, I'm due to have a transplant in a few weeks on the 24th of March. Um, what about pets uh, when you come home from the hospital? 
that's that's also a great a great question. Um, so th there are certain you know so dogs and cats. Um, um, we certainly um, we we know our transplant patients love their pets, and we want you to continue to enjoy your pets, and that's part of you you know your quality of life around and after the time of transplantation. But there are some certain you know, there's guidance that we give you. Each transplant center will give you their own specific guidance. Um, we, in terms of dogs, um, we ask that you, you know, are, are sure, are you certain that you're keeping the dogs up to date in terms of um, their veterinary care and their vaccinations, and that they're being fed, you know, appropriate. Uh, uh, you know, commercial-based foods, um, that you not mm -hmm. sleep with the pet, um, and that you wash your hands anytime you pet, you know, before and after, most importantly, after, you know, petting, petting your animal, and that you not let the animal lick or, you know, uh, touch your face or, 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 or kind of come in contact with you um, in that way. And, 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 you know, just obviously, you know, using good sense in terms of hygiene with that animal. For cats, it's, much of that is the same, and then the, the, there are the issues surrounding, you know, their litter box um, that we really say that the transplant patient should not be changing the litter or doing anything where they'd be in contact with the litter box or the feces of the cat or the dog for that matter, but we specifically worry in the context of the cat because of this risk um, for pathogens in their Stool, the most notable being toxoplasmosis, which is a parasite that can be transmitted um, through contact with that. Um, other pets, uh, you know, we talk to patients about, you know, reptiles, um, you know, uh, uh, chickens, mm -hmm. you know, things of these, you know, we really, we do not want these type of animals in the home. Uh, birds, um, if they are, you know, if they're in the home, they should be in a room that is completely separate from where the transplant recipient is that they do not go into. They should never be involved in any component of, you know, cleaning the cage, cleaning the, you know, uh, feeding those animals or being in any sort of direct contact. And those animals should not be out of their environment and around the house in a situation where you could be in contact with any place that they had been. Um, and so that, you know, we're very, very uh, stringent upon these other less typical, would you say, animals. Um, so th those are kind of the general guidelines that we, we give. Um, there are always other specific questions that come up about like certain vaccines and things like this. Right. Okay. That's great. And one other question, what about uh, washcloths and towels and that? Should you basically have your own set that nobody else uses, and do they have to be washed separate from other laundry? Um, they don't have to be. You definitely should have your own. And, and, I, and I typically tell my patients, too, if you're going to have a, a – um, I, I prefer when they're using soaps, and um, particularly with soaps, um, in the shower that they do more of the pump than the bar soap um, just because there's always the potential well one just the bar soap you're you know kind of putting that on your body if there's some sort of contamination that stays on that soap bar or there's a potential that someone in the family would then use that same soap bar whereas a pump there's less of that issue so I do I do prefer that my patients use the pump soaps as opposed to the bar soaps and most definitely, mm -hmm. you should not. You should have your own wash rag. You should have your own towel. And you know, I would, I would definitely wash those on a regular occasion. They don't, they don't necessarily have to be separate from other family members' towels and wash rags in terms of the washing. Just making sure that you're doing, you know, a towel, um, uh, the normal standard cycle in your washing machine. You're using, you know, the washing detergent, and then you're drying those adequately in the dryer. Okay, great. 
Thank you very much. And, and same, same yeah. thing also just along those lines, just thinking and being smart about the, the you know, in the bathrooms at your home. You know, oftentimes a lot of us will have, you know, the towel that hangs to the left of the, the sink that everybody dries their hands on. And I really discourage right. that, right. especially with transplant patients, you know, having paper towels there or some single-use. Um, napkin or something that you use your own that you can discard after each time to, to kind of avoid that issue of kind of cross-contamination with people. Right. Great. Thank you. That's Perfect. Great. Yeah, great answers and great questions. Thanks. Okay, caller at 819-0632. Go ahead with your questions. Hi. Um, I just had a follow-up question to the pet question. Um, so how long after um, your transplant, then would you be able to pick up after, say, your dog? Are we talking 60 days or, you know, when you take your dog for a walk, like how long can you not pick up after your pet? Well, um, so I think, you know, definitely in that, you know, that early period, that, you know, first 30, to th- 30 days to three months, if you can find someone else to do it, <laughs> I mean, it's an opportunity for you to get out of something. <laughs> So I think right. But even even in that even in that period, sometimes you know, especially after that first thirty days, um, we have people that are you know, especially you know, the autologous transplant patient is feeling great, and you know, they're out and they're walking their dog, and maybe their their caregiver's not there or someone there to help them. We would just say in those scenarios, if that is going to happen, um, and and you do have to do that, you wear gloves when you do that. Um, you discard that, and then you wash your hands, you know, soap and water um, after you do that. So. You know, I'm not saying you can never do that. And even, you know, after that first 30 days, if it's something that you have to do, you just have to be mindful of it and wear gloves and wash your hands and, you know, uh, be, be, be careful when you're doing that. But, um, you know, I'd say certainly after the six-month mark, you're, you're not, you're not going to be able to talk anybody in your family into doing that anymore. And you're going to be doing that on your own. Um, but in that, in, that, in that shorter period after that, you know, first 30 days and that, you know, like three to six-month period, as long as you're, you know, being smart about your hygiene and, and doing those things, as I mentioned, um, then that, that, that certainly is acceptable. Okay, thank you. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, I know we're a little over time, but we'll have one more question. Um, 9836757, go ahead with your question. Hi, Jenny. It's Dana Holmes. Thanks so much for having this topic today. Dr. Solo, this has been such an eye-opening discussion. You have shared a tremendous amount of information for the myeloma patient community, and I thank you for that. Um, Does every myeloma center have an infectious disease specialist on board that you know of? Um, um, I'm specifically meaning like the the big research centers, the academic centers, not not the community centers, because it's just fascinating to me. I think we should if we don't. Yeah, I, I think most. I think you know, transplant infectious disease is an evolving field. Um, but I think um, I think most, you know, and I can't speak for every center, but most most large transplant centers do. They do have. Uh, a transplant. In fact, some have ones that are really specialized to, to hematopoietic cell transplant itself, and others, such as myself, we really kind of cross the lines of both solid organ and stem cell or hematopoietic cell transplant. Um, mm-hmm. But most large, larger academic centers, I would say, do. They do have one to many <laughs> involved in, 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 in this patient population. Yeah, um, I think that's and, an important aspect for patients to consider once they're um, planning a stem cell transplant, to really inquire about the um, 
you know, this member of their team, because I really think it's critical after listening to your your discussion. Um, and I and I say this because recently in one of our online groups, um, a patient had uh, asymptomatic flu before receiving their high dose of melphalan, and unfortunately uh-huh. he wasn't um, pre-tested for it, and he passed away a few days into the ex- um, the stem cell transplant process because oh, of the flu. Okay. And it was really, you know, that's sad to hear, and and maybe that could have been avoided, maybe not, but it's certainly something yeah. to for for patients to be aware of, to to inquire about these types of things. Um, Regarding the flu, doctor, can either of the drugs that are out there, Tamiflu or Exfluza, be used to prevent the flu, or are they really specifically meant to be used once you've contracted it? Well, we certainly, um, in situations where there's an ex- there's been an exposure, we'll use it as a, po- a component of post-exposure prophylaxis. So the the the, the, tam- the tamivir that you mentioned. So we we will if if we have a transplant or other immune compromised host um, that's been exposed to flu, um, um, we we will use it in, in in kind of preventative mode. So there 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 is certainly data to support that, and there are guidelines to do that. And so we will use that. Um, but just across the board, you know, just putting patients on that, we certainly, you know, while there is some some data in what settings that's appropriate, we, we don't do that kind of just as a as a, uh, a primary preventative therapy, if you will, just applying it, glo- uh, you know, broadly, because mm-hmm. we worry about the risks of, you know, resistance emergence, right. which, 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 which is something we've already seen with these drugs, mm-hmm. and certainly don't want to add to that problem. But if there's been a clear exposure, then, um, you know, typically we'll get involved and consider post-exposure prophylaxis in the form of one of these therapies. And And do you personally have a preference uh, using the one that has been around for a long time, the Tamiflu, Tamivir, I guess you call it, versus the new one that's out now, the Exfluza? Well, I, I think I, I tend more to, you know, I think um, it depends. It, it, it's, it's a multi-pronged question. It really depends upon the scenario. I think for, for post-exposure prophylaxis, most notably, I'm probably using more oseltamivir, more um, but it, it, it depends upon the scenario that you're using it, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. um, but um, they, both have, they both have roles. Okay. okay and the, you also mentioned about the, uh, getting a, a, a booster of the flu vaccine. Um, is that, again, just is that a routine thing that you do, or is it really something per patient? Because you really seem to be modifying um, all of your approaches by patient as opposed to just broadly um, saying this, this, or the other, which is really um, terrific. Yeah, no, well, um, so the booster, I think it, it are, every, every institution is a little different, so I will put the caveat of this is what we're doing here. Right now at our, at our center, actually, because of um, logistics of trying to get insurance coverage for a double, uh, the high-dose vaccine in people that are under 65 where it's not covered by insurance, oftentimes what we end up doing is just a standard dose flu vaccine for, for, for most patients um, if, they're, if they're less than 65. Um, but if they get, um, in terms of the booster, if they get that vaccine before the six-month mark because the flu season is, is now, you know, and they're not yet at mm-hmm. the six-month mark and I want to give it to them, then I do booster them. I booster them. I give them a second vaccine four to six weeks later. Um, and that's also supported by the Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines um, because you're just worried mm-hmm. that when you're giving it to them, 
you know, at the four-month mark, let's say, they just their 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 immunologic response may not be as robust, and so that second mm-hmm. one is just to you know kind of optimize that further. Um, so 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 we don't do it in all patients, but that's one scenario where we definitely do that. But just to say, there are some centers that are doing that kind of across the board, and there are some centers that are applying the high dose vaccine across the board for the reasons I mentioned that there is this safety mm-hmm. and immunogenicity, immunogenicity data that's evolving in both in the solid organ transplant population and in the hematopoietic cell transplant population. So well, thank you so much for your time. Evolving. Yeah, sure. thank you so much for your time. You've really shared so much incredible information for us. Appreciate it very much. Oh, yeah, thank thanks, you. Dana. Thank Great questions. And thank you for your answers. Amazing. Um, Dr. Sala, we are so grateful for you to join. It's such a practical thing that I think we don't feel like we get enough um, instruction on, I think, sometimes when we're going through the process. So this is just truly amazing to have you go in this much detail for us. And uh, now I have reasons to go talk to my doctor about revaccination. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for participating. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, and I'll send you those links that I mentioned. Great. And I'll include them in our full um, transcript when we conclude the show. Thank you so much. And thank Thank you to our listeners for listening to Myeloma Crowd Radio, and we invite you to join us next time to learn more about how myeloma research can help you. 